It's Friday, November 11th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. What explains the underperformance of the red wave? Well, we all know that the magnitude of the wave at any point in space and time varies sinusoidally. And we could go with that explanation. Here's a more fun one. The hot girl vote. It was the big thing on TikTok. I saw some videos. Such civic engagement. As for the hotness, divide age by two, add seven. Nope, nope, can't comment on the hotness thereof. But it wasn't just hot girls and zaddies. It was the youth, all the youths. Stephanie Rule did a segment on the kids in her 11th hour show last night. The 13-point margin among voters under 35, it is the 28-point margin among Gen Z and young millennials that turned red states into blue. And if you really want to hear from the man who knows how to channel Gen Z, listen to Joe Biden in his post-midterms presser. And I especially want to thank the young people of this nation who I'm told, I haven't seen the numbers, uh, voted historic numbers again, and uh, just as they did two years ago. If you keep doing something just as you've done the last time, I'm not sure how it continues to be historic. But anyway, everyone's saying it. The whole space is lit. Circle, the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement, features this headline on its site. Youth turnout second highest in the last decade. We estimate that 27% of youth ages 18 to 29 cast a ballot in 2022. Woohoo! Factual. Also kind of misleading. That's a good second line in this story. I might have gone with... Youth turnout down a bit from last midterms. Last time it was 28%. But yes, both those numbers are up from usual midterm numbers. You know, when Donald Trump and abortion weren't directly on the ballot. They're also down from presidential elections, but that happens with every demographic. But the youth vote does typically fall off more than other demographics. For instance, presidential vote in 2016, the youths made up 13% of the electorate. In 2018, they made up 11% of the electorate. And it was also similarly down this time. Well, okay. Maybe this really was a Gen Z wave and it wasn't necessarily about them coming out in numbers they've never come out before or about the youth coming out in numbers greater to their proportion in society than any other age group. It was actually less. Maybe it was just how overwhelmingly they supported Democrats. That point was made by John Della Volpe, head of Circle on MSNBC, underscoring how important the youths were to Democratic success. It is the The 13-point margin among voters under 35, it is the 28-point margin among Gen Z and young millennials that turned red states into blue. 28%, that was helpful. But it's down from the 49% margin in the 2018 midterms. So I feel like I'm getting a TikTok worth of swagger, but something like a thimble full of substance. I guess the main objective is to stoke enthusiasm by emphasizing the importance of this demographic, which was very important and is the case with many a close election, decisive. Gen Z turned out more compared to itself. But so did every other demographic. Gen Z is the future, but so is every batch of younger people. Either the kids are all right, or the media are hype beasts, or I'm just a grumpy oldster, what with my insistence on spoiling the party with some stats and some facts. But hot girls, please, please continue to vote. Hopefully in greater numbers than your pretty good, but not off the chain numbers that you put up this time. 
on the show today. It's an Antoine Tig in the spiel, a bit of self-reflection. But first, Joel Stein is a writer for the LA Times, Time Magazine for many years, and now he has his own podcast, which is unique among media professionals, but it's a good one. It's called Story of the Week. He interviews the writers of the great long-form nonfiction stories to give readers, if you did read, or listeners, if you didn't, or even if you did, still works well, behind-the-scenes angles on those stories. Joel Stein up next. Story of the Week, a new podcast by Joel Stein is, well, I'm going to stop talking. They have a great explanatory theme song. Here it is. Writing is hard. Who's got that kind of time when you're already busy trying to be Joel Stein? So he turns on a mic, maybe twiddles a knob, calls a journalist friend who's got an actual job. Auditory, single story, just listen to smart people speak. Conversation filled with information is the story of the week. All right. So, Joel, do you feel bad that the highlight, and welcome to the gist, Joel. Thank you. Do you feel at all bad that the highlight of each episode is not your voice? It's this great song we just played? Absolutely not. Every project I've ever done, I had this VH1 show called Hey Joel. Um, <laughs> I, I, everything I've ever done. I've focused on the theme song because that's what I was obsessed with as a kid. Yeah. Like I, if you name a TV show from the eighties, I can sing you the theme song. So Falcon it was my Crest. favorite thing about, well, there's no words. So I'm yeah. not going to sing the Falcon but Crest theme song. Isn't there an implied melody? <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Sounds like Falcon Crest. I'm going to admit I meant sitcoms. I didn't watch any of those. I don't, I can't, I can barely do Dallas. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but no, I'm I'm excited that the best thing, the thing I look forward to the most, the thing the, the audience look forward to the most is clearly that theme song. You, you should just play it two or three times throughout this. Yeah, we should do the extended remix. We should do the uh, Skrillex version. You know, it's by Jonathan Colton. Oh, he's the um, best. He's the best. And I've known him for a long time and I begged him to do this. And I gave him the instruction to copy Sherwood Schwartz, who is the creator and theme songwriter of the Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island, because it's. The show's not a complicated idea, but I didn't want to have to explain it myself. And I thought if you could explain it in a theme song, that would do all the work for us. So tell me, what makes a story of the week? This is, this is, uh, as the theme song indicated, a really good story that you read this week that you're bringing to the audience. But that doesn't mean that every story qualifies. Even really no. important and good stories qualify as stories of the week. What's the DNA of the archetypical story of the week story? The idea is... I'm old enough where it used to be when I lived in New York, you went to like a party and then someone within the first few minutes walked up to you and said, did you read that story in the New Yorker or the New York Times Magazine or the Atlantic or wherever? And then you said yes, even though you hadn't read it. And they didn't care that you said yes. And they told you the whole story. Right. Where the guy at the party. And so, But it's, ours is better because instead of some guy who read the story, the guy I'm talking to is the person who wrote the story. Mm. So, so the the writer of the story is at the party. They're going to tell us what their story is about uh, because you probably aren't going to read it. So this is the part of the, this is the classic moment in a GIST interview where we achieve catharsis with a guest and they admit something they uh, have never admitted before. Joel sure. Stein, 
I once saw Matt. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was just going to confess something. Joel Stein, Um, I think what you're saying is you actually can't read. Look, reading was an important skill for a couple hundred years. That's it. In human (laughs) history, nothing, right? Mostly people sat around a fire, told stories, and then you would grab your loot and, uh, and tell the story to someone else. That's what we do. It's human. It's not this like, oh, reading alone. It's like bowling alone. It's bad yeah, for you. Yeah. Symbols yeah. on a page. So I stepped on you. You were once, are you going to tell a Matt Damon story? Was, I have no Matt Damon stories. Except oh, you were saying that, I was once uh, at a party and I thought you were going to say, and Matt Damon. <laughs> what's with your Matt Damon obsession? Are you mad at him know. about all your, your crypto losses? Yeah. You, I don't blame you. So with Story of the Week, though, I would say what makes a Story of the Week and what doesn't, it's not necessarily the thing you have to read or the thing that has the most Mm -hmm. facts. It's it's almost never, from what I've heard, it's almost never a trend piece that tries to be a trend piece or articulating um, some zeitgeisty moment, right? It's not that that uh, I guess the real life story of the week for some time was that New York Magazine story on the vibe shift. But I don't think that would be the story of the week because there aren't real characters. Nothing really happens. It's not an event. And I would say story of the week is always about a thing that actually happened or is happening. Like the journalist who went on thousands of Tinder dates or Doug Rushkoff in episode one dealing with billionaires who want to establish... sort of uh, bunkers for when the end times come. It's a thing that happens as opposed to an idea that's out there. Yeah, the goal is it's a real story with characters. And it's a story that's probably been bought for a movie. Right. And more importantly to me, it's a story where at least once, probably two or three times, your jaw drops because you can't believe that goes on in the world. Like the next episode will come out is about Nordic LARPing, which I'm assuming you don't even know about because I didn't know about it. Is this, story from is Wired this Magazine. Nordic people who LARP or people here who LARP as Nords? Nope. It's people in Scandinavia who LARP, but they're, they don't LARP like Dungeons and Dragons or Civil War reenacting. I hope they not. LARP incredibly dark things. Like you're in a bunker during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the bombs go off. Or there's one called Gang Rape. Oh, shit. And there's, uh, yeah, yeah, there's one, the most popular one they've actually done in America is called, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's about the AIDS crisis in the 80s. So this guy, saw, he had, uh, as a kid, done like an exchange student thing in Denmark. So he is going back to Denmark to see people there. And he signs up for one of these LARPs. And it's four days of fake gay conversion therapy. Wow. And this guy's gay. Wow. And so he has this, he goes thinking it's going to be interesting and has this kind of truly upsetting experience at fake gay conversion therapy. But the, but it's a whole story of this thing that happens to him. But it's also just like, it just can't believe this exists in the world. And so mm. that's what we're looking for, I think, in a story. Where was that originally published? It's in Wired, the last issue of Wired. Um, so the second episode we did was a New Yorker story about this doctor in Mexico who got addicted to crack and then smoked hallucinogenic toad and it cured him. And then he started administering it to all kinds of people and does a TEDx Burning Man talk about it, which uh, if you've never seen the TEDx Burning Man, everyone in your demographic has. 
it, mm-hmm. it's the it's the perfect thing for everyone in Brooklyn. And it's uh it becomes huge and he becomes like the celebrity who you get to come fly to your country and give people toad and a bunch of people die smoking toad. So it's that kind of story that just like builds on itself and becomes more and more ridiculous. So how, well, you want him to be fresh, but a lot of these stories are, I mean, they're of the moment, but they're also pretty timeless. And look, the lead time on a Norwegian Nordic LARPing story has got to be pretty long. It's like you're in our editorial meetings. This is the argument people make because we could, and we might tell stories that are a couple years old. Like we recorded Jack Hitt talking about his Ulysses story from the New York Magazine. That was a couple of years ago. Yeah. We recorded Paul Cavinta. Did you ever read his story about the zombie feral cats in Kauai? No. Oh my God. See, you're oh. saying, I think the, the grabber, like smoking toad, I don't need to know anymore. Nordic yeah. LARPing, perfect. Zombie cats. That's it. <laughs> you got me on the, they're all great elevator pitches. Oh, yeah. The Ulysses one is about this uh, incredible fight in the 80s about the correct interpretation of Ulysses. And this guy who um, didn't have any credentials upended everyone and wrote this incredible thing in the New York Review of Books. And then uh, Boston University gave him his own, made him a professor immediately and gave him his own department, basically, his own little thing to work on Ulysses. And then he uh, kind of goes, disappears. There's a photo of him feeding pigeons, and then no one hears from him from decades, and then Jack Hitt finds him. Oh, my God. Did you read the New Yorker story about um, certifying an artwork as uh, Lucian Freud? Yes, we were going to do that one. We talked about that one, and then we talked about all the art verification one. There's a Michael Lewis podcast with uh, Walter Isaacson about a Da Vinci, that they how, how things are verified and how corrupt the art verification world is. What about, there are a couple of really great uh, lottery stories. Oh, yeah. Jeff Mace's lottery story that just came out, right? The Atlantic one about the guy who may have gamed it. It may be he's more clever. It may be dishonest. Oh, no. He's just has a gambling problem, it turns out. I mean, that's the great (laughs) twist in the story, which is he's got this system and he's making millions of dollars, but it turns out he's just buying millions of dollars of lottery tickets. Oh, so the thing that makes these stories, I'm hearing a few things. Um, You telling me I get excited. There's a phrase that stands out. The person telling the story recognizes why it's a good story and is a good interlocutor with with you. But I also think there's, it says something about society, but it's not necessarily this week or next week. It's a, there's a little bit of timelessness to a lot of these things. It's a short story that happens to be nonfiction, but it could be a. Fi- it's as good as a fiction story, and it it, it tells it gets you into a, a a place you can't imagine even existed, uh, and that's that's why I love reading these stories. And I know that people spend like six months reporting these things, the, these these long stories in the Atlantic and the New Yorker or outside, uh, and a ton of other publications that no one even looks at. People spend so much time reporting these, and they. It doesn't all even get into the article. And these are really long articles. So they're just rich stories. Um, and to talk to the person that that was there and did all the reporting and met these people is very fun. Like we have the story after um, after the Nordic LARPing is uh, the story from Los Angeles Magazine about, do you know this Mormon breakaway polygamist group called The Order? Yes, they, I think um, I've heard of them. So they're like... They they do what's called um, bleeding the beast. They 
they run scams on the government and that's where they get most of their money, like welfare scams and they have child brides and they're super racist and they light upon this scam with biofuel where they get a dollar per gallon for cleaning biofuel. And this one guy in the order was really smart and he went, got a PhD at the university of Ohio of sorry, university of Utah in engineering, chemical engineering. And he develops a way to clean biofuel, but the order figures out it's way more profitable to just scam the government for a dollar a gallon. And he gets so successful at it that he has to he has to figure out a bigger way to do this. And he gets involved with the Armenian mafia in LA, this guy called the lion. And they go big. They, they scam the government for like a half a billion dollars. And then it all starts falling apart. Um, so these are all stories that are, tell me, all magazine stories? You know... I don't know what a magazine is anymore. Some of them are online places like The Verge or... um, Right. Yeah. Would be a magazine if people needed uh, print. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think of this whole trend of um, every medium says, you know what? We're just storytellers. And it's not untrue. Netflix, you're watching a story. But your story of the week is always pointing to a magazine story or something of that form. And I, I doubt you'd do a story of the week that was on Dateline NBC, or I doubt you'd do a story of the week, or maybe you would, that was a podcast. What is it about, and you come from this world, the written form that best lends itself to what you're doing? There's a certain type of investigative journalism that I think only exists in magazines. Um, I'm sure that's not true. No, podcasts do them too. You'll, You'll run into like an eight episode podcast about some crazy story. So podcasts are definitely doing it. Um, But I would say it's never as in depth as in the magazine. That's interesting. I have found that one of the problems with my pitch was as an avid listener of every lot, your podcast, but lots of other podcasts, I feel like I'm getting information more efficiently and densely and quickly than reading. But I found out quickly that that's an illusion because we would take these long stories and I realized, oh, if we want to tell the whole story, it's going to be like a Joe Rogan length podcast. Like, and, and we don't really, if, if we become Sam Harris, then we're not doing our job because we want to you know, be more efficient and give people a fun, quick version of the story. So we, yes. we've, I found that we have to kind of to get it down to a half hour, you have to really pick the most important beats of the story. I do some VO summing things up kind of in the, the Michael Barbaro, the daily kind of way where, you know, the question is a summation of, of a bunch of the story to get you to the next beat. So I've had to learn some of those tricks because the idea is basically the daily for long form journalism. And those stories are in print because writing is a really efficient medium for information. So if you want to tell a long, complicated story, you can actually do it more efficiently. Uh, You know, it's the old story about like, oh, you know, the movie was okay, but it didn't do everything the book did. When you make an hour and a half movie, you pick like a tiny bit of a book to do at best. Yeah. I find when there is a great story, and usually it is because people who I know really strongly recommend it. When there's a great story, it's always worth it. But these days, I find that compared to, say, if the same thing going on in 2004 or maybe 2012 and definitely 1994, if I am to just give myself over to a story in an outlet that has a great track record, like Wired or The New Yorker or The Atlantic, uh, back in 94 or 04, 
the hit rate of, yeah, that was worth it, was usually in yeah. the 80s. And these days, it's like in the 40s. And it could be a lot of things. Uh, could be age, could be like back then, you know, the old the critique, the media was made for me as a white guy, and maybe it was, right? Or, or it could be something with attention spans. I generally discredit that idea. Could be that podcasts are so good, I need to hear it. I have all these, I have all these explanations, but one, are you relating to that phenomenon? And two, yes. do you, if so, why? Well, it's where the energy and the money is. It's, it's quite, I think it's just that simple. It's like, you know, 2000 years ago, epic poems were amazing, right? Now the odds of you mm. really enjoying an epic poem are, are pretty low. I think just the, the whole idea of writing and reading is just incredibly unpopular. I just think the amount of words people read not including texts, are uh, minimal. People are very, you know, you look at videos you, you or you listen to podcasts. I don't think there's no money or energy in reading. When I talk to people who write these stories, the only way they're able to do it economically is uh, to sell it to a podcast and then a movie. Like the mm. articles themselves pay so little right now. To spend four or five, six months reporting this thing out is... It's just a, an economically idiotic thing to do. Whereas it wasn't in 1996. You were paid a salary right. by, you know, Time Magazine or more likely uh, you were on, you had a contract at the New Yorker or even Rolling Stone. And it was worth it economically to go do these stories. So, okay. So, but yes, I get that. So what you're saying is when I come across a story of the New Yorker that I might not be sold on by the uh, tagline or the concept in 1994, by the end, I would have wound up saying that was worth it. And in 2022, there's like a 60% chance I won't be doing that. So therefore I've stopped reading the stories that don't seem interesting to me. But you're saying it's because what I am reading is the fruit of a different system, a system that's under-resourced or drawing in less I don't know, talented people or what? Yes. Yeah. All my magazine friends write for television now. Like mm. they all left. So I think it's a it's a brain drain coupled with, I do think to some extent, you have too many options to be entertained, all of which give you more dopamine than reading a book or a magazine article. Joel Stein is the impresario behind Story of the Week from Pushkin Podcasts. Joel, thank you so much. Oh, this was this is why I did the podcast to get on your podcast. It all worked. Seems extremely inefficient. But congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And now the spiel, it is an Antoine Tig, a three-week period, wherein we normally go back and chronicle all the mistakes. And then you say, thanks, Mike, you're an honest guy. But do you say that was a fun segment? I don't know. So I'm going to try something a little different here. I've just been thinking that the corrections box of the newspaper might not be the most read section. So I got a few comments after the election along the lines of, well, you have a lot to apologize for. Do I? Why? Because you misstated the zeitgeist. You were telling us that Republicans were going to run wild. No, I wasn't. I said the Republicans were going to win the House, and I still think they will. And I did not say how they do in the Senate. I didn't know. It was too close. I based this on 538 saying 
The Democrats have a 41% chance of winning or holding the Senate. First of all, I very much trust 538. I'll get back to that. I think they're much more trustworthy than maybe the general public thinks because, I don't know, they got Trump wrong in 2016, even though Nate Silver had Trump at a 29% chance of winning the Electoral College. 29% chance comes in all the time. Nate's rivals had him at 15, 8, two and less than 1% chance. If you look at some of the other prominent predictors of The Economist or Princeton predicting services. Anyway, this time around, they said that in the Senate, Democrats have a 41% chance. So what that means is to equate it to another thing that we might understand a 41% chance about. In the fourth quarter of a football game of two evenly matched teams, let's take one team that's down by three, there's two minutes remaining, and they have the ball exactly on the 50-yard line. If it's first and 10, they have a slightly higher than 41% chance, and if it's second and 10, it goes down to slightly below 41%. So we've, if you watch football, the team in that position in an evenly matched game doesn't have to have Tom Brady as a quarterback. They'll come back and win a lot of the time, 41% of the time, according to this database that I saw. And that was guiding how I was thinking about things and what I was trying to convey to you. But it did get the accusation that you misstated the zeitgeist. It wasn't a big Republican mood. The thing about the zeitgeist is it's German for time ghost. Ghosts are ephemeral, can slip through small cracks and walk through walls. I don't say this to excuse myself, but what I tried to do was not tell you what would happen or be so certain what would happen, but explain why the things that we saw happening were happening. So ghosts are hard to pin down, and I don't say that as an excuse, but I just want to explain my process and answer those of you like Jordan Weinstein, who wrote on Twitter, you were critical of more optimistic voices on the left who predicted a not so terrible election for Democrats. And I agreed with you, but it seems they were right. They were right. It was not so terrible, though, as we know, they lost the House and uh, I think maybe they'll hold the Senate. The voices that I was critical of were not just saying not so terrible. One, Jennifer Rubin predicted Democrat wins in the Senate in North Carolina that J.D. Vance would lose in Ohio. She also was the only one of the Washington Post editorial writers who said that. Katie Hobbs would beat Kari Lake. Guess what? Katie Hobbs might win. So credit to her, maybe. Pending. Pending results. Pending a big drop from Maricopa County. But if I'm performing a mea culpa, to some extent I am, mostly I'm trying to explain my process, but I could have played and actually consider playing some wildly optimistic results from the right. The editors of National Review uh, got together and they made predictions and they predicted that Maggie Hassan would lose to Don Baldick in New Hampshire. Three out of the four of those editors said that. Eh, has some one by 9.2%. Now, I'm also thinking that, well, you, the audience, might say, okay, well, you know, editors of National Review, they're going to be taken in by narratives of a red wave. But also, it's less interesting or less cutting against the grain to say that all these Republicans are going to win when a lot of the signs, most of the signs, all of the signs that I talked about and could cite again, were saying that, right? So when you have history, when you have all these uh, Democratic retirements, when you do have polls, though, I'll get to the polls in a second, generally showing good news for Republicans to play a tape of a bunch of Republicans saying, I think there'll be good news for Republicans. It's just not that interesting. Although in retrospect, it would have been nice if I were to say, uh, this is a tendency on both sides to mistake what you want to happen for what will happen. I thought it was more clear that it was a mistake in the case of, say, Jennifer Rubin, who used to be a Republican uh, as recently as five or six years ago. So 
This gets me to Norman Ornstein, who was quoted in Persuasion magazine. They did a whole roundup of experts. What went wrong? What did we get wrong? And Ornstein, who I greatly respect, said, first, the media had the most embarrassing and biggest, said, our media was among the most embarrassing and biggest losers of the election. What went wrong? First, they either didn't understand or simply rejected the reality that polls in general are increasingly untrustworthy. Polls are not that trustworthy or not perfectly trustworthy, but I think they're more trustworthy than Ornstein is giving them credit for. The good polls, the polls that have a track record and show how they get to their conclusions. I mean, if Kari Lake was up by an average of 3% in the decent polls and she winds up losing or winning by one, or losing by one, it will still be within the margin of error. That's not a bad poll. You can't lay that at the feet of pollsters. And if anything, the polls were pretty correct. It's just the analysis of the polls, wildly extrapolating what a three-point lead or an in-the-margin-of-error lead really meant. Orenstein further assigns a motivation for why the media got that wrong. He said to CNN's reliable sources, there are so many in the mainstream press that are just fearful to a remarkable degree of being branded as having a liberal bias. And what we see is the reaction to that is to bend over quadruply backwards to show there's no bias. I think this was an apt criticism or would be an apt criticism maybe 10 years ago, but I don't see a rush to the middle by most people in the media. I see owning positions and being hashtag resistance or flat out saying that Republicans are a threat to our democracy throughout the mainstream media. I think about just the best forecaster and analyst of the election, Steve Kornacki. He's on MSNBC. Think about his MSNBC colleagues, Chris Hayes, Joy Reid, Rachel Maddow. Do they want to bend over backwards so as not to appear liberal? I think they're quite fine with saying we'd really like Democrats to win. Even on this show, I was clear in articulating who I wanted to win. I wanted Fetterman to win, and he did. I wanted Kari Lake to lose, just didn't know it would happen. And take Steve Kornacki. He was on the commentary podcast Monday, and he did cite all the empirical factors that would indicate Republicans were going to do quite well. But then he also said this. The one thing that gives me pause, it's in our new poll, uh, our new NBC poll, which just came out yesterday, and that is, we, we track over time the enthusiasm question. We ask people to rate on, on a scale of one to 10 their interest in the midterm election. And we did see an imbalance in 2014. We did see an imbalance in 2018, favored the Democrats in 2018. And as of yesterday, unlike two weeks ago, we no longer see an imbalance. We see the exact same number, a percentage of Democrats as Republicans saying they're highly interested in the midterm. So when you start looking at a universe of 120 to 130 million voters, there's it, that's a new variable, and it does raise at least the possibility to me that Democrats do get a lot more just kind of reluctant voters who wouldn't have participated in midterms in the past. Maybe it's the power of negative polarization. You could chalk it up. We could have that whole discussion if it emerges. But that's what gives me pause, I would say. And that was important. And that was one piece of data that if we had paid more attention to, although what would tell us that's the important piece of data and not polling on the inflation versus abortion issue. But if we paid attention to that, we'd have a more empirical bent as to how to craft our predictions, narratives, the impression that we gave, we in the media. But basically, my process is to guard against heuristics, to guard against logical fallacies, things like having a recency bias or a confirmation bias or a 
will versus ought bias. I think that this ought to happen. Therefore, I think this will happen. And I do ask myself, did I overguard for that? Did I overcorrect? I don't think so, but that is my process. What I did was I very much relied on Nate Silver, who very much looks at the good pollsters and I think very much made good predictions. He's better than most. And being right, but being perceived as getting it wrong, it obviously drives Nate crazy. People are so f-ing dumb, though. They- I do not get this. By the way, this happens on his podcast a lot. He just goes on profanity-laced tirades, or he just does not jettison the profanity from his expression. Do they not tell Nate, who runs the whole company, that, you know, our podcast bleeps things out? Or do they say, oh, we just got to let the big dog run on this one? Don't get, he's an artist. He's a, he's sort of a, a da Vinci of profanity. You can't get in the way of his flow. We'll fix it in post. I don't know what they do, but Nate was mad because in general, a 40% chance of winning the Senate wound up being maybe a Senate win. That looks like a very good prediction. And that's what I was using to guide myself. We were a little bit wrong. Maybe more than a little bit wrong on how well the Democrats would do in the House. I've tried to explain my thinking on that. I tried to explain why I said that the Republicans had the more straightforward message, and it seems like the more straightforward message was winning. And so I just ask you, as the listener, to definitely assess me and to uh, form your impressions, but also to really think about what I am saying and what I'm not saying. If I give a certain impression, like if you think I'm giving the impression that there is going to be a red wave, like listen back, do I actually say that? Do you think I'm actually hinting that it's certainly going to be a red wave? When I criticize those who, without great evidence, say there's not going to be a red wave, and these people are all of a certain political persuasion, and they're evidence is things like early turnout going great when it didn't go historically great. It went okay. The real evidence was that abortion would be a much more salient issue than we thought. You know, assess that. Assess that fairly or don't. It's your decision about who to listen to and what to take to heart about what he's really saying. Uh, Maybe you could just put it in the category of, okay, perhaps he's challenging my preconceptions. Perhaps he's challenging other people's preconceptions. What I always want to do on this show is to challenge my own preconceptions. Which brings us to the vaunted portion of the program wherein I award a lobstar for this Antoine Tig. I shall now read a poem to you. Listening to the news out there can be enough to gray your hair, but tune it out or walk away, that will not keep the gray at bay. The subject, the the placement of this poem was in the reviews for a podcast called Not Even Mad. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's our sister podcast, although does that make me my own step-sibling or a grandpa? I'm not sure how that works. This was put forward by a listener, a commenter called Rain or Shine Molly, and I questioned myself about giving the lobster, about crossing the streams and giving the lobster to a Not Even Mad listener. I think it counts, although they they might not know what lobsters are, but this poem ends poem. I've learned to say poem, not poem. This poem ends with arguments both smart and fair. Have a listen, friend. You're there. To respectful discourse, you have arrived. Not even mad. Go get subscribed. Slant rhyme, but I think it works better than even the arrived, contrived one that was just hanging out there. Rain or shine, Molly, you, whoever you may be, whatever the temperature, in stormy or fair weather, you are the lobster of this N-twin tig.
And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, and the senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.